0: Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss the Supreme Court are Charles Cameron and John Kostelik. Chuck is a faculty member in both the Department of Politics and the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. He specializes in political institutions, particularly the courts, the American presidency, and legislatures. He has published numerous articles and is the author of Veto Bargaining, Presidents and the Politics of Negative Power. John is an associate professor in the Department of Politics at Princeton. His research and teaching interests are in the American political institutions, with a particular focus on judicial politics and the politics of Supreme Court nominations. He has also published his research in a number of significant political science journals. So the president and Congress seem to get more play in the news, if you will, than the judicial branch. But there do seem to be points in history where we see the judicial branch shape and even transform cultural and political norms. Could we dive into some of those really transformative moments in recent history? Could you talk about the legacy that the Supreme Court has left on American society?
1: Well, that's, a, that's a big question. So there are, there are a couple of ways we, we might approach it. So there are definitely the very, very big cases that the court has decided, such as Brown v. Board and Roe v. Wade. So, so Roe v. Wade kind of spurred the conservative movement to take court seriously and kind of injected abortion as a national is- issue uh, into kind of the American political landscape. And so cases like that have had a very big impact uh, on American politics. Brown v. Board, there's some scholarly debate about how much it uh, had an effect uh, really on desegregation, but certainly it was transformational in terms of changing the way that uh, American politics uh, approach racial issues and kind of presage the passage of the Civil Rights Act uh, 10 years later. Um, But another important point is that even in the cases where the court is not so visible, it's doing lots of things that matter. So uh, recently, the court has made lots of decisions on, say, voting rights and election access that has significant implications for how people will vote uh, in the upcoming election. It also oversees the regulatory state. And so it has lots of, to lots of say about how bureaucracies implement laws passed by Congress. So there's lots of things that the courts do kind of behind the scenes that don't get a lot of play that are also very important.
0: So in American politics, oftentimes where the courts come into debate is whether the judges are acting as judicial activists, whether they are, in fact, making law rather than interpreting law. Can you unpack this idea of judicial activism a little bit for us and shed some realistic light on how much of an issue it really is, particularly at the Supreme Court level?
2: This is maybe the central debate in the field of judicial politics and political science. That is to say, how much judicial policymakers, how much the justices, how much the judges in the federal courts of appeals, how much the trial court judges are influenced by so-called politics and how much by the law. And um, that's a huge debate. But an important point to realize that in a common law system like the American system, judges are supposed to be policymakers And the hard cases, the ones where the law is unclear, ambiguous, silent, contradictory, are the ones that get tossed to the Supreme Court. So in a sense, its job is not to be like a trial court. Its job, fundamentally, is to make the law. So you can call that activism or non-activism, but it's pretty much baked into the institution by our constitutional design and in a period in which the rest of the government is intensely gridlocked often because of intense partisan conflict. it leaves a huge scope for this for the court to act relatively autonomously.
0: Can you talk about public perception of the Supreme Court in light of its rulings and its issues that are polarizing
1: so there's there's kind of two levels at which scholars of public opinion in the Supreme Court tend to think about it. so on the one hand, we might think that the public or we we, we do think that the public has specific opinions about particular cases that the court decides. So if you look on polling on, say, Citizens United regarding campaign finance, the court generally disapproves of that ruling. And you could find other controversial issues where the public might not favor what the court did. But at the same time, the court seems to enjoy a high level of what we might call legitimacy or diffuse support that allows it to make decisions that sometimes the majority disagrees with, but still maintains a high level of institutional support.
2: The court has avoided touching a lot of third rails uh, of late, but the historical evidence, especially from the Civil War and Reconstruction, is that if it did so, the consequences for the court could be extremely severe. That is to say, well, in two different ways. One with respect to the public, and that's very important, But another with respect to the people controlling the other branches, the constitutional design supplies a lot of protections for Supreme Court justices as individuals, but almost none for the court as an institution. And that means that if the court really touches a third rail or drives off in an extreme direction and is then caught out when the other branches of the government are controlled by very extreme partisans of the opposite persuasion the court could find itself in serious trouble. And um, options like uh, court packing, which is perfectly possible to do, absolutely constitutional, and has happened before in American history. Those things become live options and come right onto the table. Uh, impeaching the justices, that's harder, um, but that could be done. So all sorts of like really bad things are out there, which the court has managed to avoid of late But as politics gets more partisan and the possibility for really extreme judgments come up, this is not a theoretical possibility at this point. In fact, in our work on uh, the politics of Supreme Court nominations, where we make projections in the future using computer simulations, real dangerous scenarios come up with some degree of frequency.
0: So let's turn to a project that the two of you are collaborating on. Specifically, I'd like to hear more about the politics of the nomination and confirmation process of Supreme Court justices.
2: Well, the, the book is a pretty ambitious piece of social science history covering nominations from 1930 to uh, the present, and in some cases, going back all the way to the founding of the Republic. So
1: one one theme of the book, or, or one, one we think a major contribution, is that we collect a bunch of evidence on what parties and the presidents have cared about since 1930, and in particular, we focus on party platforms, and we code the platforms to figure out uh, which cases the parties cite, which Supreme Court cases the parties cite, to show that they're interested in, code for what are called litmus tests. So if the party if the Republican Party says, we want judges who will vote against Roe v. Wade, We code that as a litmus test. And what we find, and pretty surprisingly, is that until the 1960s or even into the 70s, basically the parties just did not seem to care about the courts. The courts barely get any mention on either platform until the 1960s. And then starting in the 60s, we we begin to see an asymmetry where the Republican Party cares more, Um, but there's still lots of variation across time and across the parties And so from that perspective, it's not surprising that you get justices who don't tend to be exact ideologues or perfect ideologues because the presidents aren't looking for them. Particularly on the conservative side, you get things like the Federalist Society, which emphasize the courts wholeheartedly and think about how we can get reliable conservative judges and justices on the federal bench. And that is uh, incorporated by presidents this century on both sides, but particularly the Republican presidents. And so we don't think, or we think it's very unlikely that you will get. Uh, surprises going
2: forward. And one of the chapters in the book is the transformation in the White House search uh, uh, procedures over time. Basically, there has been a revolution in the way that presidents organized this. So it used to be, and even as far, as far back, or, or I should say as recently as the Nixon administration, which in some sense is a watershed, it was unbelievably haphazard how presidents searched for and picked these guys. I mean, like, just random mentions and cronies and paying off political debts and just a really often extremely sloppy haphazard search operation. Now compare that to what you see in the Trump white house, right? Gradually over time, the, the white house has created an internal law firm of its own. And given the fact that you now have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of lawyers beavering away in the white house under the direction of the white house legal counsel much of the authority or the search that was done in the justice department has been pulled back it's been incredibly systematized and as you see there's often working working in close coordination with interest groups like the federalist society basically they're searching for people high and low and very very carefully who are going to be very consistent ideologically this is i mean i'm really speaking more about the republicans and they're likely to get what they, what they want. Maybe not 100%, but 98%.
0: So I wondered if you could talk about the nomination process in general. Has it changed over time? Has this idea of litmus tests and personal background and whatnot become more to the fore?
1: The first rejection of a nominee actually comes in 1795, six years after the founding. And so if you plot... Just like the percentage of nay votes that a nominee gets uh, until the middle of the 19th century, you actually get a lot of opposing forces in the Senate who are opposed to the nominees. Now, importantly, the reasons are very different. They tend to be more idiosyncratic relative to the nominee rather than characterizing vast party differences. But even in the 20th century, you have nominees like John Parker in 1930, who are highly contested, he's narrowly defeated both because he's seen as anti-union and also because he made some racist remarks in the past as a federal appeals court judge. And then things kind of calm down and then nobody's really controversial until the 1960s when uh, Abe Fortas is rejected, when President Johnson tries to elevate him uh, to the chief justice, to chief justice, sorry, in 1968. But even beginning in the 70s, we start to see kind of increasing contentiousness in the Senate. Um, Nixon has two nominees who are rejected and so Bork doesn't come out of nowhere now Bork is important because he's himself is a controversial figure largely rejected based solely on his ideology he doesn't really have any real scandals or anything like that and so we see we tend to characterize it more as a, as a gradual shift and but at the same time right everybody else is getting more polarized and so even kind of routine nominations like Hagan and Sotomayor still see highly Still see lots of opposing votes in the Senate, and so kind of everything that's changing about American politics in general as well as the court itself becoming more important and as well as nomination politics becoming uh, more important issues kind of bring us to this point where we, we see these closely divided votes
2: so yes, yeah, so basically things that were kind of unusual or only happens sp- sporadically have now become just the normal operating procedure and Uh, An important part of the story, which was sort of hinted at some of the things that John was saying, is the transformation in the interest group networks. And that is one of the really huge changes in American politics, and maybe not appreciated sufficiently even within the academy by people who don't study interest groups. But what has happened with respect to interest groups in Washington and more generally, and also for the interest groups uh, lobbying the court. Is totally mind-boggling.
0: So that's on the nomination side. I'm wondering if you could address how voters see the court, and and has there been a shift in how voters vote for their elected officials based on how they think their elected officials are then going to stack the court in a certain way?
1: I will say we don't have a um, we don't have a lot of data going very far back, so we only really have good public opinion data on the Supreme Court nominees beginning in, say, the 80s, early 90s. But as far as we can tell, when we have the survey, we have surveys that ask people who they would have supported if they were voting on Supreme Court nominees as senators. And then we can uh, ask them or people ask them whether they approve of their senator, whether they would vote for him or her for re-election what we can show is that the correspondence between the two, so how well people's views on nominees and how well their senators tended to vote along with those views or not, is predictive of whether people support their senator. And so we know, for instance, if we go back to 1991, Clarence Thomas is narrowly confirmed, and there are a few Democrats that push his nomination across the line, and some of those uh, face tough reelection battles. And one, Paul Simon, I believe, is defeated by Carol Mosley Braun who runs basically uh, against him based on his vote to support Thomas. And so if you think about Susan Collins, right, that's kind of the worst storm for her or a perfect storm against her in 2018, where she, you know, she wants to support the party. Kavanaugh looks like a highly qualified nominee, but then the scandal arises and she's very cross pressured. In the end, she, she votes to, to uh, confirm him. And basically is pivotal in his confirmation. Uh, We'll see if it actually costs her, but there is, evidence to think that people will weigh their the votes, their senators' votes on Supreme Court nominees when they think about voting for senators themselves.
0: So we've talked about particular justices and how that might influence voters. I wonder if we could talk about issues. I mean certainly you hear a lot in the popular press that people are voting A certain way because they want to ensure that, for example, Roe v. Wade is not overturned. Likewise, you hear on the conservative side, people are voting a certain way because they want to ensure that religious liberty, for example, is maintained or or gun rights. So I wonder if you could talk about particular topics that voters are paying attention to those topics as they're voting for their elected officials, but thinking through how those elected officials may then have an impact on the court.
2: So generally, the requirements are in the party platforms that Democrats put forth a diverse set of nominees, and then they're generally kind of silent. Once in a while, they'll also mention uh, campaign finance reform, but mostly not very many policy litmus tests, whereas the Republican platform is extraordinarily specific and demanding about a range of policy litmus tests. Now, where are those coming from? Again, They're coming from the activists, the party activists who control the parties. The parties are controlled by a cadre of very ideologically minded people and donors. And they're um, expressing their wishes generally pretty clearly in these platforms. And presidents are extraordinarily attentive to them. There's been some pretty good scholarship on that. They deliver or they try really hard to deliver. So you should read those platforms and say, okay, This is like a blueprint for the presidency. This is what they're going to try to do. Now, how that translates into voters is kind of complicated because it depends hugely on the information level of voters. And you have to remember that many voters are totally unengaged with politics. Those people are not going to have opinions about this. But once you start to look at the people who are strong party identifiers and really follow politics and care about it. Their opinions began to look much more like those really kind of party activist people.
1: Now, like with many other things, 2016 may be an exception, right? There's some survey evidence that among those people who thought the Supreme Court was very important, they were much more likely to vote for Trump than Hillary. Uh, Again, the context there is important. You had a vacancy during the election year. Of a kind of very famous conservative justice who, who died that year, Justice Scalia. So how well that, that generalizes is unclear. And to the extent that voters care about things, like if you really care about abortion rights one way or the other, right, then, then the parties are sufficiently sorted that the court doesn't really factor into that decision, right? So kind of polarization bundles a lot of things together. And so it's unclear how much that the court alone, uh, as an institution, matters for people's vote choices.
0: Can we talk about the federal bench in general? I mean, certainly President Trump has appointed a record number of federal judges, as I understand it, in just one term. So looking forward, if he's reelected to a second term, what's your prediction for what that bench looks like at all levels? And if Biden wins, what do you think is different?
1: With the help of Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans has appointed a record number record number of lower court judges. Uh, most of them are white, most of them are male, most of them are very conservative or have strong conservative bona fides. And so there's no reason, I think, that we wouldn't expect that to continue. And basically, the way that works is that if you think about each judge being a Democrat or a Republican, that's an oversimplification. But if you think about each judge as a D or an R, basically the overall distribution of the federal branch follows kind of the trajectory of the presidency. So eight years gives you a chance to institute a majority of liberals and conservatives on the bench. And so a Biden presidency would basically slowly but surely reverse that trajectory. And so you'd get closer to, to parity. Uh, a lot of it depends on particular circuits and how they break down, but the stakes there are quite clear.
2: A, a particular a, a circuit of particular interest, of course, is the DC circuit because the second most important in the land. Is because um, all those regulations that are written with new legislation, the vast bulk of them win their way to the DC Circuit. And the balance of power on the DC Circuit is absolutely critical. If you, again, if you read the Democrats' platform, they have in mind an incredibly activist pro- legislative program and also a very active program with respect to executive orders. And the consequence of that is if they succeed which is a big if they're going to be in the same position as the obama administration was with respect to the affordable care act and the dodd-frank banking uh, legislation that there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of regulations maybe thousands and they'll be challenged and head to the dc circuit which if controlled by the republicans will be the graveyard for the pro- for the regulatory program so one would expect that there would be considerable controversy and contention over that. A wild card, just quickly, is if you look at the pattern of expansion and the number of federal judges, uh, those expansions correspond to periods when one party controls all three branches of the government and follows a period where the other party controlled the executive branch or the government.
0: Uh, So just to wrap up, in in line with the name of this podcast, if I'm a voter for whom the Supreme Court and its decision-making is really the most important thing to me, what should I be thinking about when I walk into the ballot box?
2: By most important, I assume you mean that you're talking about somebody who has really strong views about what the proper judicial policy is. But that just means that if you're a conservative Republican, you should really vote Republican. And if you're a liberal or a Democrat, you should really vote for the Democrats.
1: The courts have a lot of power, both visible and invisible, that structure uh, public policy and kind of the things we can do and can't do. And so it's just important if you're thinking about politics in general to think about what courts might do and just to be cognizant of their uh, their power when you go to the voting booth.
0: So thank you so much for being here and um, spending some time with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very
2: much. It's our pleasure. Thank you, Elizabeth.
1: Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.